continuing in the book of Philippians. We are starting chapter 3 this morning, and we finished chapter 1 and 2. Chapter 1 and 2, the series that we went through in chapter 1 and 2 was called Partners in the Gospel. And uh, uh, Matt kind of ended it a little bit. We, I think on YouTube, we put the Partners in, in the Gospel title up there. And, and I just want to thank Matt for his word last Sunday. He did a wonderful job of reminding us. He did a wonderful job of reminding us, reminding us that every one of us are created in the image of God and are, are deserving of respect and honor and dignity that we all deserve because we're in God's image. And so thank you for sharing that word with us. And so we're going to continue on. In this series, we're going to start in chapter 3. It's called Christ Alone. Christ Alone. We're going to have three, three messages in this series in chapter 3. The chapter is kind of broken up into three sections, and it's, and it's going to be focusing on Christ alone, that he is the center of our faith. And so before we get into it, I want to open up in prayer. I just want to pray that God would help me preach and help you to listen. So Lord, we come before you, and I thank you for your word. It's what we submit to. We submit to you, to your word. God, it's not about us. It's not about me. And it's about you. It's about you've spoken to us through your word, and we want to hear clearly what it is you would say to us. And God, I pray that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, that we would grow in in our faith because of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the book of Philippians is often called the epistle of joy. It's often called the letter of joy. Because in the book of Philippians, there's only four chapters, and they're relatively short chapters. But in those four chapters, the word rejoice The word joy, the word rejoice is used 12 times, just in four chapters. The Apostle Paul is saying over and over again, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. I take joy in you. I rejoice in you. And it's it's called the epistle of joy because the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate to the church, to a church at Philippi that would have a lot of reason to not be joyful. You ever had reason to not be joyful in your life? Has life ever brought you reasons for you to not be happy, to not smile, to not be joyful? Well, th- these, these Christians here at Philippi would have had those reasons because they were, they were living in the age of the early church. They were living during a time where the church was being persecuted, where the church was going through difficulties and trials because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is why he's reminding them, take joy rejoice in the Lord. And, then, and so he's, he's, he's talking about different things in their life as we've gone through the book that can rob your joy, that can take the joy of your salvation away. And, and one of the first things and one of the, the main thing we looked at last time through this whole series in the first two chapters was that whenever there is discord in your life, in your family, in your marriage, on your job, in the church, when there's discord in the church, when there's disunity in the church, that the joy of the Lord tends to go out. Have you ever been, uh, have have had discord in your life with with someone else? Is it a very joyful experience? Have you ever been a part of a church where there's strife and discord? It's not very joyful. It's kind of difficult. And it's hard to hang on to joy because it feels like, why are we doing this? Why are we coming together? It seems like every time we come together, somebody's complaining about this or saying this and things aren't going their way here, there, and there's discord. And when that comes into a family, into a marriage, on a job, or within a church, joy tends to go out the window. So the Apostle Paul is reminding them, in the middle of persecution, you can have joy. Your joy is in your relationship with Christ and in, the, and in the middle of your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to fight for unity, not, not fight with each other, because it is on that foundation of unity is where true joy comes in a local church family. 
And so now the Apostle Paul is going to halfway begin his conclusion to his letter. And the Apostle Paul normally concludes his letters the same way. And he begins by saying the word, finally. He says, finally. And so when you know the Apostle Paul says, finally, you know, all right, he's wrapping it up. You ever heard your, your, your pastor or preacher say, finally? Or, or uh, in, in conclusion, I'm wrapping it up. This is my last point. Well, the Apostle Paul did what most preachers do. He lied. <laughs> a sanctified lie. He really didn't lie. But, but, but he says, finally, and he says the words that he said over 11 times in other places. He says, finally, rejoice in the Lord. Finally, rejoice in the Lord. And it's like all of a sudden, and this, I look, it happens to me. In conclusion, I start going and all of a sudden something rises up in my heart and, and you never know. It might be 15 minutes later. I'm still going because I just get this Holy Ghost unction and I got to go. I got to say, I got to continue. What happens to the Apostle Paul right here? He says, finally, rejoice in the Lord. And I believe that in that moment, as he's writing, as he's writing, something wells up in his heart. And he's like, I know there's another joy killer that's out there. I know that there's another killer of joy that I want them to be careful for. And it's like he throws a curveball. Because when you're reading it, he says, rejoice in the Lord. And then let's go to the text. Let's look at Philippians 3. Starting in verse 1, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, but it is safe for you. And then look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You know, wait a minute. What's going on here? Finally rejoice in the Lord and then look out for the dogs? What type of dogs I got to look out for? Look out for the evildoers. I like to look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Why the change? Why the difference? Why the clear change of subject here? It's because I believe the Apostle Paul knows that there is a joy killer, that the enemy wants to take the joy of your salvation away from you. And one of the ways he does it in the life of a Christian is through legalism and works righteousness. Through legalism and works righteousness. Through a place of believing that your salvation is dependent upon you. That your salvation is dependent upon you. And he also knows that there are people that have infiltrated the church at Philippi that are telling people that they have to earn their salvation, are telling people that there are things that they have to do apart from faith in Christ to make them right before the Lord. And so he, it's like it rises up in his heart. He's telling them, finally, rejoice in the Lord. This is what I've told you over and over again. Rejoice in the Lord, and it wells up in him. But if you're going to have joy, you've got to look out for the dogs. You've got to look out for the evildoers. You've got to look out for those who want to mutilate your flesh. So we're going to unpack what it means, what Paul means here when he's saying, look out for the dogs, for the evildoers, and for those who mutilate the flesh. What's he talking about? And what is he talking about concerning legalism and works righteousness? So we're going to unpack this, and there are, there are three things I believe Paul warns. Paul warns him about three things in this section. So let's, can, let's continue reading. So we, we read... We read verse, let's start back in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So three warnings in this text. I'm going to unpack some of those tricky things that Paul is saying here. I'm going to give you some background and why Paul is warning against dogs and evildoers and those who mutilate the flesh. And we're going to look at this subject of legalism and works righteousness and how not only was that a false teaching that was, did, that, that was infiltrating the early church, but it's still here today. And so we're going to unpack it. We're going to look at it. And the first thing that the Apostle Paul says is look out for the dogs. And that's my first warning. That's my first point here. Look out for the dogs. Well, what kind of dogs? You know, in Bible days, in the day that Paul is writing, you didn't really have dogs for pets. Dogs were scavengers. And the word dog he's using here is really describing what dogs were back in that day. They were scavengers. They lived on the street. And, and you didn't want to get around a dog in case you'd catch a disease because they might would bite you. And so he is describing a group of false teachers that had infiltrated the church. And these false teachers were called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were Jewish Christians. They were Jews who had came to faith in Jesus Christ. They had believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that he proved it by rising from the dead. He died on the cross, but he rose from the dead. And so they placed their faith in Christ. But then what they did was is that they wanted to hold on to the Jewish ceremonial customs. They wanted to hold on to the ceremonial rites of Judaism. And then also, not only were they doing that, but they were trying to tell the non-Jews, which would be all of us. I don't know if there's any, any, any uh, uh, natural-born Jews here. But all of us who are not Jews, they, w- they would be trying to tell us that, well, you have to follow the ceremonial customs and laws of Judaism for you to be saved and for you to go to heaven. And so, and so Paul is angry here. He's upset here. And he's saying he wants to describe them in these false teachers, these Judaizers. He wants to describe them in the most vivid language possible. Because these people are coming in and they're upsetting the faith of God's children. They're coming in and p- preaching of something about salvation that is not true. They're coming in and saying that salvation is not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They're saying that it also works. It's also following the law. You have to add the ceremonial law to your faith to be born again. And Paul says, look out for the dogs. They're dogs. They're like scavengers. They're like dogs that have rabies. You've got to look out for them. They're coming to attack you. And then he didn't just leave it there. He kicks it up a notch and he says, they're evildoers. They're coming with evil motivation in their heart. They're coming. They're like an evildoer. You guys don't want to be around evil people, do you? The Apostle Paul says, Apostle Paul says that those who try to add to your salvation, who try to make you feel like that you have to live by the law to be right before God, Paul says they're evildoers. 
And then he says this. He says, he says, and they're those who mutilate the flesh. What does that mean? What's he saying there? You know, circumcision was a Jewish rite or custom, kind of like baptism was a custom, a Jewish rite of the Jews that every male Jew that was born eight days after his birth would be circumcised. And so when, when, when Paul says mutilate the flesh, he's actually saying that they've perverted circumcision. And so what they're doing, what they're, they're trying to convince Jewish, uh, uh, Christian male, Gentile males, that they need to be circumcised. And he's saying it's not like the circumcision that, that was made to be a mark of covenant of the nation of Israel. This is like mutilating the flesh. They're mutilators of the flesh. And so he says, look out for them. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who try to put something on you that you are not required to do to be born again. It's through faith alone in Christ alone. So the Apostle Paul speaks in clear, descriptive language here when he describes the false teachers. He doesn't mince words. He calls it out. And that's the pattern that Paul has. And here's what I'll tell you. Any message or belief that draws someone's attention away from what Christ accomplished on the cross is the worst kind of evil. Any message or belief that draws you away from what Christ accomplished on your behalf on the cross is the worst kind of evil. He finished it all. When Jesus died on the cross and he gave up his spirit and he absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf and he paid for our justification, what did he say? He said, it is finished. It's done. It's accomplished. I paid the price. I took it upon myself. It's finished for you. It's finished for all of those who place their faith in that work. It's done. And so that's why he spoke in those terms. So some people would want to say, don't make a big deal about false belief or false teachers. Why, 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 why do that? Why make a big deal? Because it's a big deal. Because it's, there's, it's, eternal, it's, it's eternal matters that are on the line. How are you saved? What are you, what, what are you trusting in for your salvation? If, if someone was to ask you that or you were to ask someone else, it's a, very, it's a very important question. What are you trusting in? That's what faith is. Faith is trust. So if I ask you, what are you placing your trust in? To place your trust means you're throwing all of your weight onto that. Have you ever done that to a chair? You place all your weight onto a chair, and the chair, unbeknownst to you, had wobbly legs. And you put all your weight on it, and what did it do? It fell. That's false religion. That's false beliefs. And so you have to be careful. What am I throwing all of my trust and all of my faith into for my eternity? And this is why the Apostle Paul is saying, look out for the dogs. Look out for false teachers. And it would not just be just this subject about the Judaizers. It's any false belief that points away from the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. We must look out and we must be careful. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy. He consistently draws lines, calls out false teachers. He says this, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved Paul telling Timothy, a worker who, who, who has no need to be ashamed, who rightly handles the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk, these, this irreverent babble from these false teachers, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. He calls these ones out by name. He calls them out by name and says that they, what they're doing is causing hurt in the church. 
Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. And what are they doing there? Upsetting the faith of some. It's Paul continually. You read through Paul's letters. Timothy, Titus, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. He calls out false teachers. Listen to this. This is Acts chapter 20. Listen, this is Paul speaking to the Ephesian pastors. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He's talking to the pastors of the church at Ephesus. Watch over them, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise again, will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Look out for the dogs, for the evildoers, for those who preach false things. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish you, every one of you, with tears. Beliefs matter. Some people say, well, well it, it, doctrine is just something to, you know, it, it's, what, it's what people do that study the Bible. It's what theologians do that, that are at seminaries, and, and that's just what they do. No, no, it's what we do. You are a theologian. Do you know what a theologian is? It's someone who studies God. That's what a theologian is. Do you study God? What are you doing here this morning? What are you doing here this morning? Talk to me. Studying God. So welcome to the congregation of theologians. Living Word Church is a congregation full of theologians. But not only are we theologians, because most of you think that theologians are boring and, and they don't have joy. No, I'm a joyful theologian. Are you a joyful theologian? You take joy in studying the Lord? That's why we open the Bible. Because beliefs matter. Doctrine matters. What you believe is so important. And why do we know that? Because God wrote a book. And it's in black and white. It's got a beginning and it's got an ending. And so if, if, if it didn't have a beginning and it didn't have an ending and it was kind of like how some people view the Constitution, how some people view the Constitution, that it's kind of you know, flexible and moldable, you can make it whatever you want. No, no, we don't believe that, right? right? Yes, we don't believe that about the Bible. It's fixed. It's got a beginning. In the beginning was, was God. He created everything, and we see the consummation of the age in Revelation. It's got a beginning. It's got an ending, and it's not meant to be fudged or twisted or pushed into corners that God never meant it to be pushed to. Beliefs matter. Doctrine matters because it matters to God. You know, what you believe is what you'll become. What you believe, what you listen to, what you believe about God, the doctrines that you understand, your, your theological views of God matter because it shapes the way you see him and it shapes the way you see the world around you and what God's called you to do. Beliefs matter. Doctrine matters. Our beliefs and the doctrines we hold to as believers should be grounded in biblical truth. We should care enough about what we believe to prioritize studying Scripture. This is why I am committed to studying through books of the Bible on Sunday mornings because it is what you need. It's what I need. I need the Bible. I need to systematically study Scripture because it is, it is, it is the fixed point of truth that we need to guide our life. Amen? Amen. So here's a question for you. How many of you believe it's okay to lie to your kids? I want to see if there's any hands in here. How many of you believe... Oh, wait, wait, we got some halfway hands back there. How many of you believe, this is not a trick question, though it kind of is. How many of you believe it's okay to lie to your parents? Two people back there kind of did this. They were unsure. Got some kids back there doing that. No, right? It's not, you can't lie to your kids. Why? Because if you lie to your kids, they find out, then, then they'll become liars. So, no, we, we can't lie. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not lie. 
So parents, you just admitted to me that you believe it is not okay to lie to your kids. I got a question for you. Have you ever given your kids one of these? Y'all know what that is? Can you see it? What is this? Should I put it in my mouth? I think that would be awkward. It's a pacifier. Bunch of liars. I did it. It's a lie. It's a mouthful of lies, as Dominic says. It's a mouthful of lies. What, what, what is this pacifier saying to that precious, innocent life that's longing for milk? What is it saying to that child? There's something behind that nipple right there. There's something there. Here, just put it in there. And you put it in there and they suck away. Their jaws start to hurt because they're believing your lie. Hopefully they fall asleep in the process, right? <laughs> That's the point. This is, this is like false teaching. This is like false teachers. They say, hey, here, here's the truth. Suck on this for a while. But there's nothing in it. There's no sustenance. There's no truth. It's empty. It's a lie. It does nothing in your life. It doesn't produce Christ-likeness in you. It doesn't, it doesn't make you more like him in the ways in which you think and act. It, that's why it matters to rightly handle the word of truth. Look out for the dogs, for those who twist scripture, for those who say, suck on this. There's truth here. No, if it doesn't line up with God's word, it's a lying pacifier. What does the Bible say? 1 Peter 2.2. 2. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. Long for the pure milk of the word. And this is like an artificial substitute. This is like uh, added sugars. It's like added sugars. There's nothing there. But we must long. How does a newborn baby long for milk? He lets you know. That baby lets you know. Keeps you up at night. That's how we should long for truth. Look out for the dogs. Look out for those who twist scripture. Look out for those who teach scripture out of context and make it say whatever they want it to. Look out for those who add to God's word. Look out for those who minimize the importance of studying and understanding God's word. Look out for those who twist the gospel and make additions to it. Pastor Robbie Gallaty in in Nashville, Tennessee, he says this, we need to get into God's word until God's word gets in to us. We need to get into the word until the word of God gets in to us. And this is why, this is what the Judaizers were doing in Paul's day. They were adding to the gospel and they were looking at Gentile Christians, especially the males, and they were saying, you gotta be circumcised like we are if you're gonna be born again. And Paul says, no, no, we settled that in the book of Acts. We settled that at the, at the Jerusalem council. Acts 15, we settled it. Peter recanted and went back. Matt talked about it just a little bit last Sunday. Peter went to Cornelius' house by the unction of the Holy Spirit to a Gentile's house. And God said that they're to be included in the gospel. And then Peter, Peter when, these, when these Judaizers came and put pressure on Peter, Peter gave in and said, okay, you can put these regulations on them. And Paul was mad at Peter and said, no, you can't do that. And they had a, a council meeting in Jerusalem. You can read it in Acts 15. And they said, no. That is not the gospel. We can't add anything to the gospel that's not in the gospel. And that's what the Judaizers were doing. And I believe it happens today. It happens today. So that's my first warning. That's Paul's first warning. Look out for false teachers. Look out for false teaching. Look out for the dogs, for the evildoers, for those who want to add 
to your salvation, try to make you earn your salvation. That's my second point. Look out for those who try to make you earn salvation. Look out for those who try to make you earn salvation. And so this is what we need to understand about salvation. Salvation is an inward work that is worked by the Holy Spirit. Salvation is a work of God in your heart that the Holy Spirit does through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel, the word of God says that salvation comes through the power of the gospel. That the power of God, that, that, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Not does, who believes. And so what happens is that salvation, God does an inward work in our heart. And this is not a new idea. This is not something that Paul came up with. This is not that it's something new that was in the New Testament that we see there. This is, this is from the beginning of the Word of God. Let's go back into the Old Testament. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the prophet Jeremiah looking ahead, looking forward to Christ and to the new covenant of an inward work. For this is the covenant I will make with those of the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law where? Within them. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That was always God's plan. Was that God's people would love him from the heart. Not just external evidences of love. Isn't that what you want in your relationships with your family and your spouse? Do you want your spouse only to love you on the outside but not on the inside? You want your kids, your family, you want them, you just don't want them to do it because they have to do it. What kind of relationship is that? The same is true for God. His intention was always with his people that their relationship with him would be based on their heart, that they would have a covenant that was in their heart with him. Prophet Ezekiel speaks of it in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. It's about a new heart. It's not about new regulations. It's not about a legalistic list of rules you have to follow. No, I'll give you a new heart that desires to follow the rules. Do you guys follow me? I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see it? The rules are still there. We should still not lie. We should still not commit adultery. We should still not have false idols. We should still put the Lord first. We should still go to church. We should still follow the rules and the law of God. God's law is good because it reflects his character and his nature. But it should not be swapped in the order. It should be our heart first by faith in Christ. He has our heart. He gives us a new heart. And then the outward is lived out. The Judaizers we're trying to add an outward sign as necessary for salvation. Outward ways to earn righteousness before God. And so Paul in Philippians 3 here, we're going to continue in the text. We'll go back and explain some of these things that Paul says there. Paul says, okay, you Judaizers, you want to circumcise all the Gentiles? You, you want to say that it's through the outward signs of Judaism? You want to say that it's through being a rigid Jew? Well, let me talk to you. I got something I want to tell you about myself. I want to, you to hear my personal testimony, Paul says. What does Paul say? He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, meaning confidence in my ability to earn righteousness, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, he says, I've got more than everyone. 
Why does he say that? So I was circumcised on the eighth day. He followed it correctly. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, what does he say? Blameless. What's Paul saying there? Circumcised on the eighth day. All Jewish males were circumcised on the eighth day after birth. He said, check, I got it. The people of Israel, what's he saying there about being of the people of Israel? He's saying he was a direct descendant of Abraham. He was connected to the Abrahamic covenant. He said, check, I've got, I've, I've got that down. Next, he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. What does that mean? Why would that, that be something to place his, his trust in? The tribe of Benjamin was, a second, Benjamin was the second son of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. And it was one of the elite tribes of Israel. He says, check. He says, I've been circumcised. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm of the best tribe of Benjamin. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. On top of that, what does that mean? He was born to Hebrew parents who were born to Hebrew parents who were born to Hebrew parents. It means he has an unbroken lineage. There's no intermingling with pagan nations. He says, I'm pure. I'm a pure Jew. I've been circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, descendant of Abraham. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. And what does he next say? He says, I'm a Pharisee. And this is what he says. He, he, it, it, the Pharisees were the legalistic fundamentalist of Judaism. They were the guardians of the law. The Pharisees would have memorized the first five books of, of our Bible. They would have memorized them. That's what a Pharisee did. They were there to protect the law. They were the guardians of the law. So he says, look, I know the word of God. I've been circumcised at the eighth day. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he says this. I was a zealous persecutor of the church. Paul not only believed in Judaism before when he was Saul of Tarsus. He not only believed in it and followed it and was passionate. But he he sought to persecute all those that were a threat to Judaism. That's what Saul did before he became Paul. Before Christ met him. And then he says this. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. What's Paul saying there about being blameless? What he's saying is this. He's saying that nobody could accuse me of breaking the law. That's how I lived. He says, okay, there it is. There's my list. I've been circumcised. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm blameless before the law. I wanted to kill the Christians who were trying to, to, to pollute Judaism. He says, I have all of these things that you Judaizers would say that is what I need to have. I should have that to earn my salvation. And what does he say about it? What does Paul say about all of his achievements as a religious Jew? How does he view his achievements as pertaining to gaining any favor from God? What does he say? Back to the text, verse 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as Rubbish. That's a, uh, that word rubbish there is a, um, is a tame translation of the word in the Greek. Do you know what it really means? It means dung. It means dung. It means something that I don't want to talk about much for the sake of being respectable here, right? It means flush it down the toilet. That is what Paul says to these Judaizers. Says to the church that's being influenced by the Judaizers. He says, hey... You're saying 
This is what you got to do to earn your salvation. Follow these ceremonial laws. Follow these customs. Look, I've done it all. And you know what they're all worth? Whatever your noise is. I don't know. You've got a push button, a handle. That's what it's worth. When it comes to being made right before God. It's not about lists. It's not about legalism. It's not about following the rules to make you right before God. Again, because what's the question? What are you trusting in for your righteousness before God? Because that's the big question of life that we all have to answer. What are you trusting in? Where are you placing all of your weight? Is it on this list of legalistic rules and customs and traditions that you're following? Paul says, nah, it's all rubbish. It's all rubbish. He says about his ceremonial covenantal mark, it's rubbish. He says that his physical heritage is rubbish. He says that his undefiled undefiled lineage is rubbish. He says that his place of honor as a Pharisee is rubbish. He says that his sincerity and passion for Judaism is rubbish. He says that his keeping of the law is rubbish. It's all rubbish. It gains me nothing, no favor from God when it comes to being right before God. So here's my question to us. How does that picture of a legalistic Jew and a Pharisee trying to earn righteousness, how does it apply to us today? We're not, we're not Jews. I'm not asking any of you men to get circumcised. I can promise you that, right? We're not going to try to put customs on you that, 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 that are not necessary for salvation, right? But how does that apply to us today? This is what I would tell you. This is how it applies to us today. And the, 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 this is, I want you to listen to me. This is what it's about. It's about what are you trusting in for salvation? That's what Paul is getting at here. So I want to read something to you. Our baptism doesn't save us. When when, when Caroline got baptized here, that doesn't save Caroline. What, What was Caroline doing earlier? She was going public with her profession of faith. It's a symbol of a declaration that I have been born again. The water doesn't wash her sins away. Our baptism doesn't save us. That would be a work that we were adding to salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. Our baptism doesn't save us. Being baptized correctly doesn't save you. Being baptized in Jesus' name doesn't save you. Or being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit doesn't save you. It's not your mode of baptism that saves you. That's not what the gospel teaches Speaking in tongues won't save you. It's not going to get you to heaven. Have you even known somebody speak, speaks in tongues and they're about as unholy as the most unholy person you, you, that you can think of, but, but they speak in tongues. Speaking in tongues doesn't save you. Going to the right church doesn't save you. Praying the right prayers won't save you. Taking communion won't save you. It's a symbol. It's a picture. Walking an aisle won't save you. So many people think that it's, we're going to walk the aisle and that's going to save them. No, 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 Christ does the saving. He does the inward work. Walking an aisle won't save you. Being Catholic won't save you. Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Anglican, Pentecostal, Charismatic, non-denominational, or any other group you want to name. It will not make you right with God by being affiliated with any group. That's not what Scripture teaches makes anyone right before God or makes them righteous. Being born into a religious family won't save you. The faith of your parents won't save you. Memorizing the Bible won't save you. Your church attendance won't save you. It doesn't give you extra credit. I like to see you here, but it's not going to get you to heaven. Your generosity won't save you. You You can't give your way to heaven. God's not after your money, and neither am I. 
God's not after your money. He's after what comes because of your generosity. His blessings. His provision. That's what he's after. Giving your money won't save you. Being nice to people won't get you to heaven. Being a good person won't save you. Your keeping of the law of God will not save you. So what are you trusting in? You're trusting in anything other than the finished work of the cross. You're trusting in the wrong thing. You're leaning all your weight on the wrong thing. It's Christ's work, and that's it. It's Christ plus nothing equals everything. That's the gospel. Christ plus nothing equals everything. It's like the story of a man named Jeff who was married to a woman. A woman, I, I didn't really give her a name. Well, it didn't really matter. I'm not going to really name her. This is a made-up story. It's like a woman who was married to a man named Jeff. Jeff was a hard taskmaster. Jeff, Jeff had a list for his wife to do. Husbands, you don't do that to your wife, do you? Well, this guy, Jeff, hypothetically did this to his wife. He gave her a list of things she needed to do, and she, she had all her life was ordered and structured. And so that's what Jeff did, and he had these rules and regulations. He was a hard taskmaster, and, and his wife got accustomed to it. She got accustomed to the rules. She got accustomed to these, these parameters that her husband Jeff gave her. She got accustomed to it, but then all of a sudden, Jeff died of a heart attack, and he's gone. I just made up how he died, but it didn't really matter, but, but he died. Jeff died. And the woman decides to go on vacation to Europe, goes on vacation, and she meets a man named Bill. And Bill looks at this woman and says, wow, she's beautiful. I want to get to know her. Bill looks at her and says, oh, man, I want to be in relationship with this woman. I want to get to know her. He pursues her. He loves her. He loves her no matter what she does. He loves her unconditionally. He says, I want to marry you. I want to take you as my own to be my wife. And so, of course, this woman is swept off of her feet. But you know what the problem was? Was that earlier, before she went to Europe, The woman took her dead husband, Jeff, because she was so used to the rules and the regulations, she embalmed him, talking like taxidermy, and put Jeff, put Jeff on the couch in the living room. Because she needed, she needed that structure, and that was her comfort, was I got to follow Jeff's rules, I got to obey him, and, and I'm comfortable here. Then she goes to Europe, and she falls in love with Bill, and they decide to move back to America, and, and she welcomes her new husband into her home, and, and Bill walks in, and there's Jeff. And she says, hey, I want to introduce you to my old husband. And Bill looks at her and says, no, 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 this is not how it works. You can't be married to your dead husband and be married to me. You can't be married to that and still be married to me. No, no, you have to love me and and let me love you. This is about a relationship. And you know what? This is what we do. This is a picture of legalism. This is a picture of legalism. See, see, many of us are like this woman in a Christian life. We're living in a rules-based legalistic approach to Christianity. And then someone comes up and says, hey, you can be free. You can be free. The Christian life is freedom, not legalism. It's freedom. It's not trying to earn your salvation or maintain your salvation. You can be free. It's like Bill looking at his new wife and saying, go bury the man. Don't live under that pressure. Don't live under those rules and those regulations. That's not what it means to be in love. That's not what God ever intended. He intended that we would be in relationship with him and that we would obey him because we love him. And that's like Bill. Hey, I'm here to love you. And I want you to love me. 
So Christianity doesn't seek to do away with the rules. Doesn't seek to do away with the rules. However, legalism refers to a wrong viewpoint about rules. Legalism refers to a wrong viewpoint about rules. It it expects a list to do what a list could never do. It expects a list of rules to do what a list of rules could never do. And as the Apostle Paul said, our list of spiritual achievements and our list of spiritual requirements will do nothing to help us earn or maintain right standing before God. It's all rubbish if we think it is making us right before him. So finally, in conclusion... Where does our righteousness before God come from? Where does it come from? It's the next section of Philippians 3. Our righteousness is a free gift from God. It's a free gift from God. That's what Philippians 3.9 says. This is the gospel right here, Philippians 3.9. And be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. We're to be found in Christ, not coming to Christ and saying, Here, Lord, here's all my good works. Here they are. I'm laying them at your feet. He says, No. We're not coming with our own righteousness. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And here's the key right here. The righteousness from God, it's a righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's where the righteousness comes from. It's a foreign righteousness. It's an alien righteousness, some theologians call it. It's a righteousness that is outside of us that God gives to us because of faith. That righteousness depends on faith. What does that mean, that it depends on faith? It means that 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 righteousness has as its foundation faith. You know a house depends on a foundation, right? Foundation crumbles, your house crumbles. That's what Paul is saying here, that this righteousness that comes from God To make you right before him, its foundation is faith, not works. That's what the Bible says. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, another of Paul's letters. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your undoing. It's not your works. It's not because you're obeying Jeff. It is the gift of God. Our righteousness is the gift of God, not a result of of works, not a result of communion, not a result of baptism, not a result of church attendance, and all that list that I read to you. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, Paul says, since we have been justified, how? Justified means to be made right. How are we made right before God? We're justified by faith. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Where's your peace today? Have you lost the joy of your salvation? Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Have you lost the joy of your salvation because you're living under a, a burden of legalism? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord and look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who make you try to earn your salvation. It's a righteousness that comes from God. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's a righteousness from God. It's the term, it's the term substitution and imputation. Substitution and imputation. Jesus was our substitute. He took our place and he imputed to us his righteousness. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The old has passed away. I'm, I'm dead. I've been buried, crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, not I that lives, but Christ lives in me all 
has been made new. The new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Look at verse 21. For our sake, this is speaking of Jesus, for our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. That's substitution. He took our place. He became sin on our behalf. Took the wrath of God for us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. You become something that you're not. You become something that you couldn't earn because of your diligence to legalism. You become something that you couldn't earn because of your good works. Through faith in Christ, you become the righteousness of God. Stop and think about that. As believers in Jesus Christ, when the Lord looks at you, he sees Jesus. He doesn't look and say, okay, well, let me examine that life. Let me look. Okay, let me see if I can see some righteousness there. Have they they've been paying their tithe? Have they been coming to church? Well, no, they've been skipping a little bit, and so they're out from under my righteousness. And that's not, that's not the joy of your salvation. That's not the finished work of the cross. What happens is, is when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and he looks at you, he sees Christ. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Your hope for glory is in Christ. It's Christ in you. You guys get what that scripture means? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Where is your hope for eternal glory? It's Christ in you. It's not obeying the rules for the hope of glory. It's Christ in you through faith. It's the great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. And he says it's yours. It's free. You just got to believe. Just got to believe. Just got to believe. Just got to trust. Just got to repent of your sins. Turn your back on the world. Believe in him. Believe in Christ. And he'll make you brand new. He'll cleanse you. And you know what will happen? You have joy in your salvation. You have joy, peace, forgiveness. No more shame, no more guilt from what you've done in the past. And I want to talk to the believer here real quick. Listen to me. If you've, been, if you've lost the joy of your salvation, here's what I believe happens. You forget what Christ did on your behalf. You've forgotten. You have, you have amnesia. You need to remember. Think back to who you were before he saved you. Think back to what he did for you on the cross. And remember that he did it just for you. And some of you here today, you feel like, well, I'm not really maintaining my salvation because I keep making these mistakes and I keep having, making these sins. You know, all the sins that you would ever commit, they were nailed to the cross. He paid the price for them all. And that's the process of sanctification he has you in. You get born again, you get justified. The Lord's going to work out our, our weaknesses and our failures and our sins. He's going to help us to mature in the faith. This is why we're here. This is why we go to church. This is why we do all those things, because we love him and we want to mature in the faith. But it's not what makes us saved. You need to return to the joy of your salvation. The joy of your, your, your salvation is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I'm not trusting in my own good works and abilities to be good enough for God. And because I'm trusting in Christ's work on the cross for me, I can know that I'm his. I can know that I am his when I place my faith in him. I don't have to live under the burden of legalism. I don't have to live with the fear that God will let me go. Book of John, Jesus said in his high priestly prayer as Jesus prayed to the Father. He said, he said, all those that you've given me, I will lose not one. 
I don't have to live with the fear that God will let me go. God is the one who saved me, and he is the one who will keep me. That's what the Bible says, Philippians 1.6. We read that earlier in this series, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. What's the good work he started in you? You got justified. You got born again. You received his righteousness, and he began that good work, and he will hold you to the end because you're his. You belong to him. He's your child. You've been adopted into his family. And that's the joy. Hear me. That's the joy of your salvation. None of us are where we want to be in our walk with Christ. We all know we need to mature in the faith. But we can rest assured that if we have placed our faith in Christ's work of redemption on our behalf, that we can live with a peace and a joy in our hearts, knowing that God will bring to completion what he began in us. Amen? Amen. Stand your feet with me. I want us to end singing a song. I love this song. I was weeding, I was weeding my, my shrubs yesterday, picking the weeds. I had my, my noise-canceling Bose headphones on. If you're ever driving around in Terracane and you see a skinny white guy in shorts and a t-shirt out there cutting his grass, it's, I got my head, that, that's me, it's your pastor, and I was on my knees pulling my weeds and this song, In Christ Alone, came on and I, and I was picking the weeds faster because I was feeling the motivation of the Holy Spirit as I was hearing the words of Christ alone and what he's done for us. And that's what I want us to end with. I want us to end hearing and singing together this beautiful hymn of what Christ has done for us. Amen. In Christ alone my hope is found He is my light, my strength my song this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand.
Go in the power of Christ today. I love you. See you next week.